millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about big changes at the Office for Students, COP26 and research, student engagement and anti-Semitism. It's all coming up. Perhaps what we've missed is that for many young people, learning is a group activity and, and the context of the physical lecture theatre is almost as important as the delivery from the front. And we haven't got the techniques to measure that. Um, but it does worry me that if even if it's a perception that people aren't being taught face to face... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us row the HE policy waters. As usual, we have two fantastic guests in Bath. It's Sue Rigby, Vice-Chancellor of Bath Bar University. Sue, your highlight of the week, please. Morning, Mark. Well, I would just say if you go onto the Wigmore Hall website, you can still book for Christian Gohar singing Brahms in early December. That's going to be the highlight of my autumn, I think. And in Cambridge, it's Jonathan Grant, uh, Wonky's contributing editor and director of Different Angles. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Well, it's November, Mark, so I always think November is the is the dullest of months, but I think my highlight this week has been, if you like, the wobbling of the House of Cards of the current government. Um, a gentle wobble, I think, but um, hopefully we're starting to um, see some integrity or debates around integrity be brought back into the political domain. Right. Let's start the week with the news that Nicola Dandridge is stepping down as Chief Executive of the Office of Students. Sue, this has set tongues a-wagging across the sector this week, hasn't it? Well, there's nothing higher education likes better than gossip, is there? But I, I think the sector is very sad about this in a way. I mean, Nicola Dandridge has set up the Office for Students and been a leader of great integrity, trying to achieve the impossible against a background of the government changing its mind every 15 minutes about what it actually wants from universities. Um, you have to hope that her successor will have a clearer run at it uh, because I think her task has been impossible. Impossible and, I mean... An impossible task for sure, but uh, uh, it's also fair to say, isn't it, that I think you know people are people. Have, there's been a lot of disquiet about the RFS in the last few years and what it's done and how it's kind of conducted itself. Do you? How optimistic are you that kind of what comes next will could could potentially reset things? Well, a reset is definitely what's needed, isn't it? I mean, the Office for Students has has differed from Hefke essentially in by removing any gap between government policy and what universities are required to do and by attempting to quantify the university experience which we all accept isn't capable of quantification. If the next step is to use that quantification as a regulatory tool and particularly if the intention is to use it as a funding tool then I think we will have stepped a very very long way out of a sensible regulatory system and into one that's arbitrary and politically driven. I don't think it's happened yet, but I am worried that this change at the top might indicate that the regulator's moving in that way. I mean, the, the, I don't think there's ever been an analysis really of what the Office for Students is for. You, you've got that, that common interpretation that regulators shouldn't be cowed, captured or conned by the sector it regulates, uh, but within that should work in harmony with it to encourage best practice. And, and I think rather than that, what you've seen with OFS is the creation of a whole series of almost artificial 
disparities between what universities are doing and what they're perceived to be intended to do that, that's created a sense of, of disappointment between the regulator and the sector that, that is an artificial construct, really. I don't think any of that was of Nicola's making, but I think it's been imposed on her by governments and by very, very active chairs um, that certainly haven't stuck at a non-executive role, have they? So, Sue, you mentioned um, different chairs. Uh, obviously, the, the new chair is uh, James Walton has only been there a short time. Um, we haven't heard a huge amount from him, but there has been um, disquiet, I guess, about his appointment, former Tory MP, and there was some controversy about the makeup of the panel that appointed him. I guess the other, the, 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 the interesting thing that's happening alongside all this is we're about to get an announcement for a new director for Fair Access. We're going to get a, um, probably going to get a, a, a free speech champion, um, both of which are uh, ministerial appointments um, with the chair. Um, and now we're going to have a new chief executive. So um, I think, is, is there a risk that essentially OFS is going to be stacked up quite heavily in, in government favour? Well, I think it's inevitable. But I'm not even sure that it's inherently wrong. I mean, universities are deeply uncomfortable about it. But if we all agreed with clarity what universities are for and what the outputs are that are required of them in order to be regulated well or perceived to be you know, within the envelope of good regulation, then and, and if enough time is available to move to that point, we might all dislike it, but it's clear. I think the worry at the moment is that every two and a half seconds, it seems, we get another identification of some terrible thing that's happening in universities that we have to focus on immediately. Uh, and what that tends to be followed with is that the Office for Students appoints someone or brings someone in to oversee that aspect of university life. And that can't go on indefinitely. In the end, there has to be an identification of things that are core and deeply important and things that are peripheral and might be of transitory concern, but don't need long-term regulatory oversight. I mean, J Jonathan, how, how, how does that balance get struck when it comes to something like regulating free speech? Well, I think the, I mean, I, I would almost step slightly back um, from this debate um, and um, sort of echo what Sue says. So um, to a degree, um, the shift from Hefke to the Office for Students has been a shift in the autonomy of universities um, and in effect more government control um, as exercised through um the Office for Students. And I actually think Nicola has done an extraordinarily good job in navigating that. Um, you know, we can all critique um, elements of it, but at the end of the day, that was almost, um, or it was an impossible job um, and a very tight, tight rope to walk along um, between what the sector wanted in terms of autonomy and what the current government wanted in terms of um, control. Um, and in the past, in, under sort of different contexts, um, Hefke was very apt at managing that. Um, but as that desire for control from government has increased, um, I think um, OFS and, and Nicola in the role of chief executive have been put into an uh, impossible situation. And I don't think that situation is going to get um, any easier or any better in, in the sort of next three to five years time. Um, and partly, I think it's exactly what Sue says. It, it goes back to the core conversation about what is the role of universities in serving society in the broader sense. And the fact that we have a officious regulator is in part a consequence of um, the sector losing sight of its um, purpose and um, its role in broader society. Now, we may not like that, 
Um, but to a degree, I think um, the OFS is a consequence of um, you know almost 20, 30 years of um, universities um, getting too distant from their communities which they serve. Um, and the solution to this is to actually really focus on our purpose, um, deliver um, outcomes for, for students, for communities, um, for um, society as a whole. And if we do that and strengthen that social contract in the jargon, um, then the need for regulation may begin to wane. Um, but that's not a short-term solution. That's a long-term plan. I, but I, I like it. I like it as a as a response to to how to deal with the the, the tricky day-to-day uh, regulatory waters that that the RFS uh, that the RFS has to deliver. I mean, what's the kind of? I mean, sh- should it be someone from the sector that that heads up this effort? Do you think? Yeah, I I, I was reflecting on that. I think the two questions here: What does Nicola do next? Wouldn't she be a fabulous vice chancellor somewhere? And who would you bring in? Um, to take over that role. Um, and again, if you look at the history of Hefke, um, there was quite a lot of movement between um, the the sector and Hefke, if not exclusively. Um, and quite often people would um, come in from VC roles, go into Hefke and go back out to a VC role. Um, so, so, you know, in the sort of um, utopian world, which we don't live in, I, I would say, yes, you want somebody from the sector. Um, in the real politique world that we do live in, um, I think that's reasonably unlikely. I, I think that's interesting because I wanted to say the same thing. And then I actually thought, maybe we don't need someone from the sector because it is very hard to step outside a university world and look in on it from from somewhere distant. And I wonder if that's what we need at this point in order to get that simplicity and clarity. You know, this, these worlds are very complicated inwardly, but when you look at them from the perspective of business or another regulator, I wonder whether they're actually rather straightforward. And I suspect what we need is somebody with the clarity of mind and the focus and the heft with government to try to elicit from both government and universities where those commonalities of purpose are and then to regulate towards the delivery of those. Um, I think that's making up an ideal person that doesn't exist, but I don't think they have to come from within the sector because I don't think government would trust them. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment. Why don't we get um, you know, uh, uh, the regulator from Ofcom? For example, um, you know the chief exec of Ofcom or, or one of the other utilities. You know, what would they bring? Yeah, a, sort um, of a, a, a professional regulator yeah. rather than a p- yeah. professional higher education person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that that would yeah. be that would be fascinating. Uh, someone who knows how to navigate those those two things. Um, well, good luck to them, whoever they they might be. And as you say, I think uh, it's probably not the last we're going to see of Nicola Dandridge um, <laughs> in, over in higher education land. But um, I guess we'll see. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, it's actually Jim from the team. Uh, my blog this week was scratched up on Monday morning when we saw a new, well, a sort of new-ish report from one of those Tufton Street think tanks, the Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, the Mail on Sunday had previewed it by informing its readers students are being ripped off by a tuition fee system that encourages Mickey Mouse degrees. Drink! Uh, in the report, and in reports about the report, universities are accused of being focused on increasing numbers of students rather than improving the quality of degrees. And so it says student loans should be overhauled to encourage universities to offer degrees that help their students lad better paid jobs when they leave instead of subsidising creative arts degrees, you know the sort of thing. And how would all that work? Well, the idea is to ensure that universities have skin in the game. Uh, and that will be achieved by, in the future, universities handing out student loans themselves with money that's loaned to universities by government. The report says that will push universities to focus on STEM courses. 
It's actually a really old idea that re-emerges every few years and gets trashed. And on the site this week, I've traced the history of it and asked ourselves how we got to a point where instead of deciding as a society that we need to invest in and subsidise where economic returns would otherwise be poor, we've somehow stumbled into a situation where the political consensus is we'll only invest if the state gets bang for buck. Funny old world. Now, COP26 is still going on in Glasgow, and Tuesday was Science Innovation Day. Jonathan, talk us through it. Yes, Mark. So COP, um, I actually ended up Googling what COP stood for, and it's the Conference of the Parties. You couldn't come up with a more duller title for such an important um, event. Um, And as you say, on on Tuesday, um, it was Science and Innovation Day. Um, and, And, you know, sort of reflecting on it, I think to a degree, it was a bit of a damp squid. There were a couple of um, major announcements made um, in terms of um, supporting um, four new missions for the um, Global Missions Innovation Programme, which I have to be honest, I had never heard of, um, but it's a focus is around development of clean energy. Um, And Patrick Vallance, the Chief Scientific Advisor, announced a new um, investment of around £50 million um, in a joint UK-Canadian climate um, adaptation and resilience research programme. Um, but both of those seem like um, you know small fish in, in a big pond, can, given the challenge we're making. Um, and I, I was just reflecting last night, it, you know, from a science technology point of view, we have all these um, billionaires um, in a space race um, investing large amounts of money in driving technology forward um, in creating um, greenhouse gases. Um, uh, but, you know, wasn't there an opportunity of bringing together some of these people and creating a new global funds like we've done um, in the health space over the years through Gates um, to really um, sort of raise the ambition around science and, and climate change. So whilst I think, you know, you have to welcome these um, developments um, and they are positive, um, it seems like there is a real missed opportunity here to do something really um, sort of large and, and um big and and sort of um, awesome and hairy, if you like. Um, In terms of um, the other thought I had was um, the, you know, sort of driving down into HE rather than science and tech is the role universities as a sector, you know, in the UK and globally have in um, addressing the the sort of um, climate disaster um, we are facing. And, um, you know, one of the issues there is around international travel. and, And, you know, with the pandemic, we've seen, um, that we've all moved on to Zoom and doing virtual conferences and seminars and, and what have you. Um, but, the, you know, there is a sort of um, elephant in the room debate around, are we going to go back to that? Um, will we have academic incentives that are aligned with um, international recognition, which is often proxied by giving a keynote speech in another continent? Um, the dependence of the research intensive universities in the UK and globally on international students to um, fund um, research deficits and such like. So I, I, I do think whilst we can focus on um, science and technology response and um, to climate change, and clearly that's absolutely critical, I also do think we need to um, look at some of the long-standing practices within the sector. Um, and th- that's not meant to be a criticism, because also I think if you look across the sector, a lot of um, universities have led change around you know shifting to um, green energy, um, divesting um, investments and, and, and such like. Um, but it seems to me there are some really difficult debates to be had going forward about the, the impact we have as a sector internationally, um, especially through um, international travel of both academics and students. Sue, so, so has, has this all sparked conversations on campus uh, at, at Bath Bar about climate? Yes, I mean, 
climate is what we're all talking about, isn't it? I mean, I, I have to say, you know, and I would because I, I lead an arts and humanities centred university. I'm not sure that the correlation with climate change and science is the right one. I think the only solutions to climate change are for people to change what they do and how they do it. And the truth is that if we're going to get anywhere with this, people are going to have to be, and universities are going to have to be, colder, shabbier, poorer, in order to redress the overuse of resources that's currently happening. And none of us wants to do that. So really that kind of the false hope is that science can find a solution to us. You know, we can capture carbon and store it underground and we can carry on doing what we've always done. And we can carry on, in a sense, living with the global inequities that we're seeing now. Uh, but put in place things like COP26 to give us a, a place to talk about how virtuous or how lacking in virtue we are. But actually, the deep change is in behaviours. And nobody at the moment is focusing on that to a sufficient extent, I think. Yeah, can, can I just um, absolutely support Sue on that point? And I had written down in my notepad, um, Arts and Humanities. Um, you know, why can't we have an Arts and Humanities Day? Or why wasn't this a actually a research day um, rather than a science and innovation day? I think we've seen through the, you know, through the pandemic, there's been a scientific response um, to, to COVID-19, and that's been deeply effective. But we've also learned that actually um, the social response, the behavioural response um, is as important, if not more important than that scientific response. Um, so we need to take a much more holistic approach. And again, that's where universities should be able to contribute. But I think it's difficult because we're so used to every kind of adaptation in the world leading to an improvement in quality of life or duration of life. And what we're looking at here is is an active movement towards a lower quality of life as we'd currently see it. If you define that by income, um, you know, the ability to warm or cool our homes, the ability to kind of interact, travel, talk to one another in the way that we currently do. All of that has to change and none of it is as yet on the agenda for change. It does feel like we're kind of still at square one. Yeah, but a, a lot of that, Sue, gets back, I mean, you said it yourself, but it gets back to how we measure progress. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of GDP growth is, is a perverse measure of um, societal progress. And we need to collectively, internationally, um, start using different metrics to measure what we actually mean by well-being and economic growth. Yes, and possibly even going back to our previous conversation, you know, rethink what a good graduate outcome is in terms of a sustainable future. Yeah, absolutely. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's a hidden history of HE. So one of the questions that arises from educating women is should they have a special curriculum for women? Should they be doing the same as men? What's going to be happening? Though you have to put this in context. It's very important not to take historical things out of context and, and laugh at people in the past. Never want to do that. Um, but if, in the context of what women's careers were like, well, what would a, what would a useful degree for women uh, look like? So the King's College Department of Women um, has decided that it, it's going to explore what that might look like. And it gets some benefactions from outside to set up a course to think about a useful course for, for women to do. And they settled on household and social science as the model that they should they should take forward. So they start to develop a course in this. Now this quite quickly becomes uh, quite an important part of the college and they transfer back to King's um, the, the English and history and other kinds of subjects and leaving the college to really concentrate on household and social science. Now in its high day you can get a proper BSc degree uh, from the University of London in household and social science in which you learn organic and physical chemistry, general biology, applied chemistry, bacteriology, household work, 
special household work, institutional management. And the tests that come with this are just wonderful. So what you get is you get this lovely publication of exam papers. So uh, you, you get a sense of what people should be doing. So the exam paper uh, from 1921 uh, talks about uh, what, what should you do for economic biology. Uh, and the question is, give an account of the habits and life history of the itch mite. Um, write an essay on insects and disease. Uh, so you get this kind of breadth of, of thing. But, but what makes it clear what's going on here is the practical exam that you get to sit. So one of the things you get to do is you have a day exam. Uh, you get to uh, take the exam from uh, in the morning. You get uh, uh, 10 to 1 for, for part 1. Plan meals for a day in a middle-class family for each of the seasons. Give the quantities required and compare the energy values. What principles would guide you in the choice of food? And there's a practical exam, so that's just theoretical still, so the practical exam, 10 to 4. Prepare a day's meal for a family consisting of father, mother and two children, using as little fuel as possible. Hand in a list of fresh ingredients required by 11am and calculate the price of each meal. Second part, all utensils used are to be cleaned and left for inspection. It includes the washing up. It's a wonderful idea. Now, obviously, as this is, you know, this this is not without opposition. Uh, but some years before, um, there's this wonderful uh, suffragette um, publication called The Free Woman, uh, run by a woman called Dora Marsden. And, and she's got a friend who's at this college um, uh, teaching uh, on this thing. And, and she's quite forthright about this course, uh, as you might imagine. She says, the aims of those who frame such a retrograde sc scheme are in radical opposition to those of women who are deserving the freedom and development of women. Uh, they aim at perpetuating women's inferiority by perfecting her in the role which puts her in the greatest difficulties of her development. I protest that a more impudent piece of charlatanry has never been perpetuated before in the history of education. Dora Marston goes out there. Now, eventually, obviously, it wanes and it, it moves off. And, it, and what comes Queen Elizabeth College goes into more normal branches of science. Uh, but for a moment, there's this wonderful BSc degree in household and social science. Now, two new big surveys out this week from Advanced HE and the ONS uh, that tell us a little bit about what students are up to. Sue, talk us through it. Well, we always welcome the UK engagement survey. It's a very different way to understand students and the way that they perceive that the skills and the and the work that they're doing in university and the potential value it will have. Um, and also the Office for National Statistics over the COVID period has done invaluable service in giving us the COVID-19 insight survey. And I think what both of them say is that students are miserable and disengaged um, and that universities have an urgent job to do in participating in their recovery to a past point where they were both more engaged and more satisfied. Um, and the tricky thing is that as soon as COVID waned, we wanted to forget that it had ever existed. And what these surveys insist that we do is both remember it and address the ongoing legacy from it. Mm, yeah. And there's, there's a lot in there, isn't there, Jonathan? I mean, how do we how do we kind of pick up the pieces from COVID? Well, yeah, um, you'd win a big prize if you got the answer um, for that one. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think there's, um, there's a number of threads to this. Um, one of the threads, I think, is, you know, A, this is not surprising, um, that students feel more disengaged um, than they have in the past. Um, but at the same time, I do think we need to acknowledge um, some of the sort of um, societal trends around um, disengagement. It's not just in the HE sector. Um, and, you know, there's quite good sort of socio-demographic data 
on um, sort of Gen Z students um, having more sort of um, passing affiliations um, with brands, with music, with trends um, than previous generations. And, and that sort of sense of belonging um, is maybe defined in different ways than we traditionally define it. Um, but that's not to sort of let us off the hook. I just think it's, it's a slightly more um, nuanced um, discussion. Um, I also think it, it gets us straight into the debate about online versus physical edu um, education, to be honest. Um, and again, you know, I think the generational effects there where you can create um, online communities, you can create sense of belonging um, in online communities. Um, I just have to look at my 14-year-old son playing um, Fortnite um, every evening. Um, you know, he participates in a, an online community, has a deep sense of belonging um, in doing that. Um, so again, I just think we need to shift up the paradigm in which we think about these issues and the way perhaps we, we, we deliver um, online and physical education. Um, but all of that, um, you know, doesn't undermine the point that I think we have a, a as a sector, we have a responsibility um, to really um, not only engage with our students, but give that, give, you know, share with our students a, a sense of identity, um, both within their institution, but within the communities that they reside both in a temporary sense when they're at university and in a more permanent sense um, when they may leave university. Um, and you know, going back to an earlier comment um, Sue made about student outcomes, I think understanding um, how you as an individual develop um, a sense of belonging, how you develop um, resilience, how that impacts on your um, personal mental health and collective mental health um, is something that we should be openly discussing and talking about within um, university courses um, and see that as part of the outcome of a undergraduate education. Um, but, you know, so, so I just think there are many different threads in this. And again, we probably need to sort of be a bit more conceptual in unpacking it to come up with effective solutions. Hmm. Now, a few, a few stats jumped out from the, the ONS report, didn't it? I mean, Sue, so the, the one really surprising one, 41.7% of students um, said that they've attended zero hours of teaching. Uh, in person this year, which seems high. We don't know whether that's because they've uh, they've they've been offered in-person teaching, they've not turned up to, or whether um, whether it wasn't on offer. Um, and PGRs are in in that mix. But I mean, it does that does seem that does seem higher than you would have expected, doesn't it? Yes, it really does seem high, doesn't it? I mean, we've just done our first kind of survey across Barspar and we think about 74% of our teaching is face-to-face. -face. But what I don't know is how heterogeneous that is because, you know, if you're teaching dance, you can only do it face-to-face. Um, some subjects that are more academic can maybe be very well delivered online. And I think what we're seeing is that there's a fallacy in what we care about. It might be that you learn more in an online lecture around the subject that's being taught. But perhaps what we've missed is that for many young people, learning is a group activity. And and the context of the physical lecture theatre is almost as important as the delivery from the front. And we haven't got the techniques to measure that. Um, but it does worry me that if even if it's a perception that people aren't being taught face to face, I'm wondering if that's becoming equated with that sense of disengagement. You might be learning the material, but you're not learning it through a context where you feel a sense of belonging. And losing that sense of belonging, I suspect, is the real threat that the pandemic creates for young people. And I think it could well be that that's part of the reason why student mental health and well-being is also, you know, in the state it's in. That if we don't know where we are, who we belong to, 
to what communities we we affiliate, then we're all sitting in our bedrooms, you know, going through an existential crisis every day, and it's quite tedious and and rather wearing. Yeah, I mean, belonging. This this is this is the kind of this is what everyone is focusing on right now. And, and I think rightly so, because the, the mental health numbers in that survey also, you know, remain stubborn, remain, remain tricky. Um, and I, I think, um, I mean, there's, prob- there's probably, uh, there's probably a lot that, that can happen locally, but it would be great to see some, some cross sector initiatives on, on belonging. I mean, we're doing some research about this at the moment and, you know, the UPP student futures commission is focusing on this as well. But um, I mean, this is the next kind of frontier, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah. And, and, and a- Again, you know, just sort of going back to some of the data, we, you know, there's sociodemographers um, would point out to this concept of um, delayed adulthood, um, which basically means um, today's young people on a range of indicators um, are experiencing various life events, like having your first job, getting a driving license, um, having your first drink, um, first time you have sex, etc., um, at a later point, a later age than previous cohorts. Um, which um, means that effectively um, when we have an undergraduate intake in the 18, 19-year-olds, they are um, younger, um, in quotes, than previous generations. Um, And then you overlay the impact on the pandemic on this. um, And um, to, you know, broadly speaking, as a sector, we we, we haven't changed the way that we bring in um, first-year students. Um, We haven't adapted... Um, to this idea of delayed um, adulthood, which is you know very evident um, in the data, and and you know we we still think that um, that you know these eighteen year olds are adults and they should get on and do it and sink or swim. Well, um, actually, I think we we have a deep responsibility um, in helping them um, in that first, second, third year, um, which is you know manifest itself in out you know negative mental health outcomes. Um, but actually, this is about um, sort of helping people develop and transform as individuals. And um, that should be part of our role um, as universities. And I think the, the pandemic has only amplified that argument. Um, and that, you know, that, that really um, puts a lot of responsibility on universities. But going back to our earlier comments, um, that surely is part of our role in a, in a broader societal contract. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think... What I'm coming round to, and I resisted it for years, is a sense that as universities, we have a duty of care to our students, which does put us almost in loco parentis. And that's not with the intention of keeping students in an infantile state. It's rather helping them move into adulthood in a protected space. Um, And to do that by using all of the resources we can in terms of their friends, their carers, the, the people who participate in their lives in a way that 10 years ago would have been unthinkable in most university settings. And I think that's something that we will need to see regulation to enforce because it is a major change of culture within the university setting. But I mean, colloquially, I would also say that, you know, what my academics are saying is that first years this year are fantastic. They are desperate to learn. They're very curious. They're very engaged. They're just so relieved to be out of their homes and into halls of residence and to the extent they can be into the classroom. And so there is a potential upside to this if we can harness that and really bring it on through the next three years. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, I know it's early in the term, but I mean, you know, so, so that's, that's fascinating to hear that they're that engaged. And I, I'm just also fascinated to know if there's, there's anything else different about this cohort. I mean, this is a question that I'm asking everyone. It's, I know it's early days in, in the academic year, but what is jumping out about 
about this cohort, particularly the the young students who've had a really rocky couple of years before university in, in the pandemic with A-levels and everything that happened with that. And as you say, it's being stuck in their bedrooms at home um, for so long. I'm, I'm really fascinated to know what's different about this generation of students? Well, again, it's just colloquial, isn't it? You, it'll be a little while before we can we can answer that question with any certainty. And, and at the moment, I don't think we have surveys that will ask the right questions. But my sense is that there have been fewer, uh, let's say, breaches of protocol in a first year cohort than one would expect. The fire alarms go off more, but the ambulances are called less frequently and the police haven't been engaged at all. Um, I think the level of anxiety and social anxiety in particular is sky high. If you look on social media, students are worried about everything, how they look, the people they're living with, how folk are behaving, and their sense of agency seems to have dropped. They're not sure what they can do to change things that aren't suiting them. Um, the, the demand for well-being services is sky high. Uh, I think you would expect that. But what I'm not clear about is to what extent that's kind of long-term serious issues and to what extent it's short-term anxiety that can be kind of, in a sense, supported through in a relatively short space of time. Hunger for learning is sky high and confidence and ability to learn is low. Um, and I, I think somewhere in there, you've got something around what Jonathan was saying about students are younger. But, but it, of course, it's not that because th- they've still gone through all of the developmental stages, but, but in a really concertinaed way since lockdown started to end in July. Um, and I would say that the potential for this to be a, a brilliant cohort is absolutely there. And to be a cohort that's actually more engaged and more seeing the value of participation, learning in groups, developing skills than maybe previous cohorts who could take that for granted. But the scaffolding that they're going to need to really achieve their potential is probably greater than it's been in the past. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. And I think that there's a sort of slightly counterintuitive argument here um, in as much as the, the, the sort of um, sheer horror and anxiety of the last two years um, has maybe developed a slightly more um, sort of resilient and robust um, cohort of students um, that when given that opportunity um, to develop, that, that they are going to probably exceed to a degree expectations um, in a way that we, we may not be thinking about. Um, we, we, we may be seeing this group as, as a group that um, have been um, sort of, um, if you like, um, scarred by the pandemic, and, and obviously they have, um, but that scarring may actually lead to some counterintuitive um, sort of positive consequences, although, as I say that, um, there are clearly massive distributional effects um, in that, so it may it will affect different people in different ways. Um, but as Sue says, we need the data. This is just pure speculation, isn't it? Yeah, still absolutely fascinating, though. Um, and it's a question asking asking everyone just to find out what the mood on campus is. And um, and as, as Sue says, the data will follow. Now, anti-Semitism on campus has been all over the press this week. Uh, Jonathan, tell us why. Well, the um, OFS um, published a report um, basically cataloguing the number of universities who have um, signed up to the um, IHRA definition of um, anti-Semitism, um, which is around 95 um, universities in the UK, or two-thirds um, of all um, universities. Um, and so the, the focus inevitably is on those 28 um, uni- uh, universities that have not necessarily um, adopted um, this definition of anti-Semitism, um, and that's creating a, um, a, a debate that has definitely been picked up um, in the media. I think that I'd make sort of three um, comments um on this mark. Um, the first one is when I was at King's, um, we adopted um, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism um, and we were one of the first um, universities to do that. 
Um, and at the time, internally, that, that created um, some angst and I was reasonably um, involved in, in some of the discussions. Um, and one, one of the issues that seems to come up a lot is around the um, definition that is um, adopted and whether that allows um, you to critique um, the state of Israel. Um, and in my mind, there's quite a lot of mythology around that because when you actually read the definition of anti-Semitism, um, proposed by the IHIRA. First of all, it's a working definition. Um, and secondly, it's got a lot of um, cans and coulds in it. Um, but what we did at King's, and I know a number of other universities have done, is to sort of accompany the adoption of a clarifying statement saying it's ent entirely legitimate um, to criticise the state of Israel, um, if you feel that's appropriate, um, but to do so um, not using sort of anti-Semitic um, tropes and such like. I do think this gets us to the earlier conversation about the OFS um, and the question of why is the OFS um, <laughs> regulating um, through the reporting on um, the adoption of such statements. Um, and again, I think that it's just another example um, of um, what I would describe as overreach um, of the regulator. Um, I'm sure not everybody would, would agree with that statement. Um, but as with um, these issues around... Um, anti-Semitism, around free speech, around donations, which has also been in the press. Um, a lot of this um, is really difficult stuff for universities to deal with. Um, and, you know, I, I use the word universities to capture the whole community um, because those communities will be divided on these issues. Um, and the challenge I think we face as a sector at the moment is in this world of um, populism and polarization. Um, the response is presented as being either black or white. Did you adopt the definition? Did you not adopt the definition? Do you support free speech? Do you not support free speech? And the reality on the ground is that all of these issues, and as well with donations, all of these issues are deeply complex, deeply nuanced, um, and usually case by case. That, um, so it's very hard to, um, for universities to adopt a standard position to them. Um, and I think, sadly, um, we've lost that sort of framing of um, respecting the complexity and nuance um, in, in a lot of these issues. And that's how and why they get um, sort of on the front pages of, of the Times, the Guardian, Telegraph, the Mail, as they have been this week. Yes, I guess, so it can both be right that uh, OFS may be overreaching on, on this issue, uh, but also that uh, adopting the, defini the actual definition of anti-Semitism could, could be the right thing to do for a university. Yes, I think that that's right. I I think it's less overreach, more overbroadening. You know, if 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 everything matters equally, in the end, universities and vice chancellors are going to give up a little bit because if there's no topography on this map, then we don't know what the really, really, really significant things are. And it's not for a minute to say that this isn't a significant thing, but it's it's a statement that we adopt or we don't. And I'm not sure what the ongoing role of regulation is in that. Do you kind of check annually to make sure that we haven't kind of sneakily disadopted it? Or, you know, <laughs> what do you do with the university that's developed another definition of anti-Semitism? I, I think the risk is that we can regulate without nuance or we can direct and learn from one another with a degree of nuance. And this whole area is requiring of a nuanced individual approach, as Jonathan said. It's absolutely possible to accept this definition of anti-Semitism, and Balspar's done it, and also to respect the, the legislation coming up and the existing rules around freedom of speech. But at a crude level, they are 
quite difficult to reconcile. And it's in the capacity to reconcile them and the capacity to reconcile all of these very complicated requirements of universities around airing difficult subjects and airing subjects that we disagree about, that the nuance must come in. And in a way, we are bound to get these things wrong in order to move on with a generic sense of what more right looks like. I, I don't think that this is an area where one can avoid controversy. The requirement is to learn quickly from it. And at the moment, what we're learning quickly from it is to try to avoid it. And that has to be the wrong approach. Yeah. And just, the, you know, the, the, the risk in this, and, and it's the risk in, in my view in the, in the, um, the, the, legisl- the recent legislation around free speech is that universities do two things. One, one is they take a deeply instrumental approach. So, yep, we're going to adopt that um, definition um, so we get the regulator off our back rather than having the, the conversation about diversity and inclusion um, within their, their community. Um, and on the um, free speech side, there's a risk that um, people are not going to invite controversial speakers to campus because they're, they're worried they're going to get sued. Um, so the, the sort of counterproductive um, elements of some of these um, sort of um, polarised debates, I think, are deeply worrying for universities and what universities um, stand for. I mean, the Secretary of State thinks that there's a case to answer on this issue about donations from, from Oswald Mosley, a case to answer particularly for uh, for Jewish students at, at Oxford, given that Mosley was a fascist. Is there a, is, is there a case or is this is this ancient history? So there is a case, but um, again, it's nuanced and it's complex and you could make the same case for accepting a donation um, from China or from a number of Middle Eastern countries. Um, some would argue you could accept, make the same case for accepting donations from um, fossil fuel companies. Um, and, you know, th- therefore, you know, it's not a this is right or this is wrong type conversation. Um, and, you know, context matters. Um, and the process by which universities review and that they got very sophisticated um, ethics review committees around donations matter. Um, I don't know the specific details of this case, but um, I do worry that we, we, we say, um, you know, all of this is wrong when we know, um, you know, turn over the, 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 the book of the um, ledger for donations, the next page, there would be another donation from another entity, which some people will find um, as wrong as well. Um, so again, you know, it, it's about nuance, it's about embracing complexity, and it's about creating spaces that have um, these conversations. I, I suppose I agree with that. I, I mean, I caveat this by saying that nobody at the moment is offering Valspar an enormous amount of money <laughs> from a slightly dodgy source, and I would really appreciate having that moral dilemma. So if anybody's out there with a really dodgy big check, then, you know, test me on this. But I'm not sure universities should accept large donations from individuals or companies or states. I'm pretty sure that that corrupts the outcome. At the very least, it it is perceived to make it reputable. This money might have come from an odd source, but we use it for good ends. And so that's fine. And I'm not quite sure that it is fine. And I think that the the tendency we have to see universities as being philanthropic organisations immediately creates a really difficult context for us to function in, where all of our expectations, let's say around free speech, are muddied if we're presenting a difficult topic in a lecture theatre named after somebody unfortunate. Um, you, You can't get away from the fact that universities are probably the best way to clean a reputation. And I'm not sure that they should do that for money. Yeah. And the other, I mean, that's a really, really interesting point, Sue, and just sort of two um responses to that you know first of all um 
you know, reputations change in time, don't they? So, so you know, accepting a donation in year one uh, may have consequences in 200 years' time, um, and, and you know, and that that you know adds to the complexity. Um, but then the next question is, if you like, why do universities feel the need to accept these donations? Um, and you know, is it because they're not being fully funded, or is it because they're using that money for um, other stuff? Um, and I think you know, it does get you back into the the, the sort of debate around funding um, of universities um, in the UK. And clearly, what we're doing here um, is trying to adopt an American model of philanthropy. Um, at least a number of universities are. Um, but if you um, go to continental Europe, there, there's very little university philanthropy going on there because they have a fundamentally different um, funding system. Um, so, so it, I, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting point to make that actually no donation should be accepted full stop um, and, and, and one that, um, you know, at a theoretical level, I'm quite happy to support and endorse. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into... I'll start that again. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to our website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sue, Jonathan and everyone at Team Wonky that makes it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.